The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. He was a much admired writer who died on April 23rd, 1616. Selman Rushdie called him one of the fathers of modern literature. William Shakespeare? Well, that's the trick. Everything I just said applies to Shakespeare, but it also applies to Miguel de Cervantes, author of The Ingenious Gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha, or simply Don Quixote. Those of us who love Shakespeare often think, well, what if Shakespeare had written a novel? His facility with language, his eye for description, his cracking sense of plot, and above all, his insight into character. Just imagine what he could do with the form. And for those of us who are tied to the English language, we might go about our business and stop there. Too bad. They weren't writing novels then, so Shakespeare had poetry and theater, and we have his sonnets and Othello and Hamlet and all the other plays, which are a gift. Let's not be greedy. Except people were writing novels, not in England, but on the continent, including those written by the man Rushdie called the other father of modern literature. Cervantes wrote what's been called the Spanish Bible, and while it's not a sacred religious text, it's hugely important, and it's a great, great book. It's the kind of book that's always relevant, always smart, always funny, enjoyed by generation after generation in countries and in languages all over the world. A book that's always a step ahead of us placing Cervantes in the company of the greatest of literary geniuses, Miguel de Cervantes, author of The Quixote, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Miguel de Cervantes. We have a lot to cover here today. We might need to do this in two parts. We will see. I'm building up to Machado de Assis, my friends. We spoke with super friend listener Claudia from Brazil, who has gently urged Machado onto us for months, maybe years at this point, along with our other Brazilian friends. And I want to bring you that conversation with her. I can't wait. But since we're back on our two-episode-a-week schedule, for the time being, we have some room on the calendar. And I also wanted to talk about Tristram Shandy and Lawrence Stern, because he was so important to Machado as well, along with Cervantes. One of the things, do you have irritants in your life? Are there things that hit you, like fingernails being slowly drawn down a chalkboard, making that screeching sound. Kids don't know about this sound anymore, do they? They don't even have chalkboards now. They have whiteboards here in America. Anyway, I'm not sure how much chalk is being used around the world. Are whiteboards an improvement? Maybe not. Maybe we're going to digital projections, which is fine. I've been a little down on whiteboards. Not that chalkboards are much better. Chalkboards are no good, really. You get the screeching sound. You get nails on the chalkboard. That became a cliche of one of the very worst sounds you would ever hear in your life. And blackboards, that term, made no sense because half of them were green. Although a nice blackboard sure looked good, didn't it? With some nice chalk on it. Anyway, you had to pound erasers and breathe in fumes, the chalky dust. I think, I think I still have some of that chalk dust in my lungs. It lives in there with the powder from the candy cigarettes I used to smoke. Literally, those were given to us at Halloween by well-meaning neighbors. The 70s were a rougher time. Kids, get off my lawn. Actually, don't. Stay on my lawn. As long as you want, I'll bring out some lemonade. I like kids, and I don't care if my lawn is trampled by their little feet. 
Speaking of screeching sounds, my lawn right now is filled with cicadas who scream their bellies out looking for mates. <laughs> it's the most desperate sound ever. 17 years underground, they emerge, mate, scream, and disappear underground again. The howl of the incels. Bug version. I've got to get moving here. We'll get to Cervantes. But one last thing about whiteboards. I told you I was off those. I've been off those ever since I taught English in Taiwan. And the schools were all fancy and modern. And they had whiteboards with markers. And the floors were kind of slick, too. And one of my fellow teachers realized that you could draw on the floor and wipe it off with a paper towel. Just like you could use the whiteboard. You could use the floor that way. So he handed out markers to everyone in his kindergarten class. And they had their lesson like that, where he would call out a word in English and they would draw that word on the floor. Apple, banana, house. And they were drawing and drawing. The trick when you teach kids to do things, when you, when you teach kids, the trick is to do things that take up some time. Draw a house. Draw a city. Good, good. Keep going. And 30 kids drawing away down there on the floor. Cats and dogs and dragons and tigers and houses and apples and cities. And the fumes started to, from the markers, started to fill that little room. A little room with no windows. That vault in those cram schools. My friend started feeling lightheaded. And the kids were staggering around a little bit. Couple dropped, <laughs> couple dropped down, dropped, fell to the floor. So, sometimes progress needs an escape hatch, as John Updike said. A beautiful phrase in an essay about beer can tabs. My goodness, that's so perfect, isn't it? A gorgeous phrase in the service of a pointless essay. Updike. In a nutshell. Okay, so what's my irritant? What are the nails on my chalkboard? How about this one, which I offer up humbly and without malice? It's when a novel comes out and it does something formally innovative. Maybe the chronology is out of order. Maybe the author addresses the reader. Maybe there's a blank page to express a character's indecision, something like that. And people act like the author must be a genius for coming up with that idea, or brave for breaking all these rules. People, there's nothing genius about coming up with the idea. The idea is simple. Sim, Paul. There's nothing bold or brave about it either. There's not this thing called a novel form that's been handed down to authors and everyone has a rule book to follow and somehow breaking the rules is like figuring out how to turn a room into zero gravity and live like no one has ever lived before. Some of the earliest novels that we have already broke all those rules. Books aren't mirrors that work in one given way unless you shatter them. Books are built from scratch every single time. If you read a book, you yourself are probably asking all the questions that an innovative writer asks to himself or herself. As they're writing. Who the devil is writing this thing? Why is he or she telling the story? How does the writer know what happened? What am I doing here reading it? How can this thing take me backwards in time and forwards in time and jump from here to there and back to here again? Writers are given those tools and that power. And it's hard to get it right sometimes. And sometimes they say, you know what? Instead of laboring to hide all the stitches and seams, all the work that's gone into getting this right, I'm going to be open and upfront about them. I'll make that part of the story. I'll take the reader into my confidence. Writers. Writers write what they know. They write about their experience. How many times have you heard that? And what's the one experience that every writer has, by definition, what it's like to... Actually, there's two. Let's say two experiences. What it's like to read a book and what it's like to write one. So let me be precise when I say that it's not genius to address the reader or break some other imaginary rule. Am I saying it's no big deal? No. Am I saying that books that do this cannot be works of genius? No. What I'm saying is that it's not some 
bold and innovative act to come up with it. Our inquiry does not stop there. That's a feature of the book. If it's the only feature, if the rest of it is not dazzling in and of itself, then it's the, the feature is just a trick. But if it's a feature that leads us into what we expect from great literature, if the work makes us laugh or makes us cry or gives us insight into life or art, then great. When a carpenter comes to your house to fix the roof and he pulls out a hammer, do you fall all over yourselves and say, my God, look at that thing, look at that tool, look at that amazing pounding implement he has in his hand. What an astounding development. No, you admire the work, the worksmanship. You admire the roof when it's finished. You might say, wow, he had a nice hammer. His hammer was impressive. Nice color, shiny. Here's what it looked like, and here's how he used it. He was good at swinging it, but your focus should be on him and most of all on your roof. Don't get so dazzled by the hammer that you act like some hayseed who's never seen a hammer before. And when you're reviewing a book that breaks some imaginary rule that you yourself have invented because you think all novels are the same, don't fall all over yourself praising the book for making us all rethink what a novel is or some nonsense like that. Very few so-called innovative novels do anything more than what Cervantes and Lord Stern and Machado de Assis and some others were doing hundreds of years ago. At the very beginning of novels, people were turning novels inside out. There were novels that played it straight and novels that played it crooked. Humans wrote them. Humans with lively minds. Humans who made choices. Sometimes... What seems like an amazing development to you here today is one that actually occurs to every writer, and they sometimes adopt it and sometimes reject it. Tolstoy thought about novels, too. He could have written something every bit as innovative as, let's say, David Foster Wallace, but he wanted a different effect, and he selected the hammer that would work for him, and he swung it with acumen, and he built a different house. Don't be a hayseed is the takeaway. Now, that leads us to the big question for today. Who was Miguel de Cervantes and what kind of house did he build? We'll start that story after this. Grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, I forgot we're going to be running through the mailbag today, too. Maybe I shouldn't have told the story about the dizzy kindergartners in Taiwan, but hey, I'm doing my best. Working hard, staying humble, here for the hustle. Getting ready to make some big changes in my life, people. My mind's a little distracted, and I also need to thank our Patreon subscribers today, those saints of the earth. That's the club to be in, people. They are the angels, the angels of literature. I've been truly blessed. 
by these angels. I'm in the ditch, still where I started back in that ditch, and I've been visited by wonderful people who have reached down with a helping hand, a gentle hand on my forehead to make sure I'm okay. And their names are new patrons Amy and Alex and Ben and Charlotte, Rachel, Kevin, thank you all, Tracy, Petelia, and Tom. These are new patrons. It's been months since I've gone through these new patrons. Cervantes might seem like a good place to do this. Think of me as the the screwy little squire. And these are my knights. Not deluded knights, I should add, although who knows? Maybe my critics would say that they're that they are. <laughs> oh, critics, how did I attract so many enemies? All I'm doing is talking about books. But anyway, thank you to Linda, who gets it, and David D and David W, Mark, Stephanie, and Lake Kennard. That's a great name. I hope that's his name or her real name, Lake Kennard. Deb and uh, Edge Blas. Hope I'm pronouncing all these correctly. Kate, Margarita, Israel, Claire, Kathy, David, just David, no last name given. Sylvia, Jeffrey, Becky, Paul, you are my heroes. As are Wendy and Riley and Anita and Margaret and JD and Joanna and Zephyrus Zephyr- and Elad and Torino, Luve, Nicole, Michael. I can't believe how blessed I am. I really did not appreciate just how many people have signed up these past few months. I am so lucky. Feeling better about myself, people. I really am. This is, I needed this. Thank you, Rodrigo and Robert and another Nicole and Jason and Shi Ying, Margot and Perry and Sylvia and Mary, Jeremy, Kathleen, Elizabeth, Kenneth, and Michael M. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am in your debt and all the rest of you as well, you generous souls who truly do make this show possible. That's patreon.com slash literature. On to the mailbag. Listener David has been listening to the podcast on long bicycle trips, horse rides, and the ups and downs of his home elliptical. He was struck by the Kate Chopin story, Desiree's Baby, and its O. Henry-esque ending, and had some thoughts of his own, a whole new theory for how to view the ending. Very compelling stuff. I'm always glad when ambiguity can open doors for us. Listeners, resist the urge to get angry at ambiguity. That's not what the author wanted for us to think. Who cares? Who cares if we know what the author meant or or didn't? Maybe sometimes we can search for and find a deeper understanding in those cracks where we don't understand something. There is truth in the flicker, as Conrad might say. Listener Elizabeth enjoyed our episode on Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which was a fun one to do. And listener Juan said he also enjoyed that one, or those two, I guess it was, and told me that in his own reading, he went from war and peace, which he loved, with two exclamation marks, to the stranger, and would like an episode on Victor Hugo. That's a great idea. I almost did one on Victor Hugo after our episode on Rimbaud. Victor Hugo made a cameo or two in that one, which got my creative juices flowing, sparked my curiosity about Mr. Hugo. We will try to get to him soon. Listener Joe was about to read Salman Rushdie for his book club when, lo and behold, our episode popped up. He's now looking forward to Midnight's Children more than ever, and he is also a copywriter, as it happens. So he took some inspiration from Rushdie's experience as a copywriter. Good luck to you, Joe, and keep up the good work. I hope you enjoy the Rushdie. Speaking of India, we heard from Esther in South India, who's studying for her competitive exams in English literature. She's sort of absent-minded, she says, so she's been using the podcast to help her study, and it's been working. Now, when she takes the test, she hears the answers in my voice, which (laughs) I don't know what to say. Oh, I'm honored, flattered, and honored. And also a little, uh, mm, little, little worried that I'm, <laughs> I'm not, I, I get things wrong sometimes, Esther. You might want to check other sources, double check things against other sources. She also, Esther also says she's a little lonely. Indeed, aren't we all? You might be lonely, Esther, but you are not alone. The podcast 
this podcast and your old friend, Jack Wilson, are right here. We're here for you. And so is literature. That's what literature is. The greatest minds in the world have put themselves out there because they wanted not to be alone as well. And so we have a community of seekers all in our little cones of isolation. But also we are all together. Listener Izzy found our show on the 10 Best Literary Cities, and he was glad that Mike and I left out New York. He speculates that it was a controversial decision, but he's glad that we did it. He's traveled too, and he's lived in Chicago and Asia, like I have, as I have, and he's a little tired of the stranglehold that New York has on literature in our country. Very true. Once I read, I think it was Calvino, who said, yeah, there are so many Italian writers working in publishing houses that a novel set in a published house has become boring. It's almost as boring as an American novel set on a college campus, said Calvino. Well, let me shift that a little bit. Same idea. We get movies and TV shows set in California, specifically Los Angeles and that area, and we get books that are set in Brooklyn and Manhattan and Connecticut, which is all fine. I love New York, but hey, there's life going on in other places too. Even so, I still find it kind of funny that Mike and I both assumed that the other would take New York as number one, and neither one of us took New York at all. Didn't crack the top 10. Mike is is Mr. New York as well. He's a He's a fish out of water everywhere else, except maybe Paris. Anyway, thank you, Izzy, for the email. Speaking of drafts and Mike Palindrome, hot takes. This one is the hottest of all. We did our episode on Overrated, the books you don't need to read. It was an early episode. It's been an often misunderstood one. I wasn't saying, let's get rid of these books. I wasn't saying, don't read them. I wasn't trying to ban books. I was saying, don't feel guilty if you don't get to these. Most books fall into this category. Actually, all books do. But what kind of a draft would that be? So Mike and I made our picks to help out you readers who feel harried and burdened, trying to ease some of the pressure. I think I started with Shakespeare's comedies, except Twelfth Night. And I said, hey, you don't need to sit down and read them if you don't want. Go see those plays. That's fun. But if you never get around to reading a comedy of errors because you're so busy reading James Baldwin and Kate Chopin and George Eliot and whoever, well, hey, that's okay. Don't beat yourself up about it. And immediately I got an email saying, I went to see As You Like It and it was one of the greatest. Well, stop there, my dear listening friend. Do you hear yourself? I went to see As You Like It. That's not the same as I sat down and read As You Like It, is it? You can read those plays if you want. Maybe you only want to read Shakespeare ever in your life, and that's great, that's fine, that's fun, have at it. But if you are overwhelmed by recommendations and short on time, as I am, I'm not old, but I'm not not old, then you've got to trim your list somehow. That was the spirit of the show. And I thought, well, we'll let people off the hook with Finnegan's Wake and some other big blocky books that people feel bad they've never read. They wonder, should I read this? Do I can I even can I even live if I haven't read this book? And the spirit of the show was read what you like. There's more good stuff than anyone could ever get to anyway. So just try to read great literature in a great way. That was my idea. And Mike. Our old friend Mike came out throwing heat. His flamethrower was turned up to 11. His first pick, Don Quixote. (laughs) He objected to a character vomiting into another character's mouth. That's where he got tired of the book and put it down. And yes, it fit my approach. It's a big book. You don't have to read it. Fine, if you're a If you're a scholar of literature or a scholar of Spanish literature, maybe you need to read it. But but the rest of us, we we have books we can read, not read. You can read a book or two by Dickens. You don't have to read 20. Boy, did that pick Don Quixote set off a whirlwind. I think I've gotten as many complaints about that single pick (laughs) two minutes of our lives 
and a few thank yous, to be sure. The complaints were mostly very polite. Please give it another try. It gets better toward the end, or I didn't like it until the second time through, that kind of thing. Maybe you need a new translation. Hmm. A lot of fans of Don Quixote registered their polite discontent. Okay, we've got to get rolling here, don't we? Let me wrap up this incident with Mike to say we're still on board with not reading Don Quixote as we're on board with not reading anything. In particular, literature is not a gun pointed at your head. It's supposed to be the thing you turn to instead of a gun pointing at your head. But we don't want anyone to be confused. Don Quixote is a great book, an important book, but also a great one. And Cervantes is in the pantheon of great writers. He made a a serious contribution to literature and deserves all of our attention. And guess what? He himself had a life almost as interesting as his works. Let's turn to that now. Most of what we know about Cervantes came from the work itself, his own allusions to himself and so on. There's no contemporary account, no biographical sketch, let alone a biography by someone who knew him or by someone who came a generation or two later when people could be interviewed and memories could be drawn upon. Instead, we're in a position as we are with Shakespeare, about whom one commentator said, quote, It is not the register of his baptism or the draft of his will or the orthography of his name that we seek. No letter of his writing, no record of his conversation, no character of him drawn by a contemporary has been produced, end quote. That might give you a sense of what we're looking for and what we got and didn't get. The problem if it's a problem, is that in the era of Don Quixote and Shakespeare, Cervantes and Shakespeare, people focused on the works and not the writers. Today, we've almost reversed it. We focus so heavily on the lives of writers that you'll see writers tempted to exaggerate their biographies in order to attract readers. It's standard now to insist that we not only get the work, We know who wrote it, where they live, what their family life is like, where they come from, and so on. We're intrusive in the lives of writers today. It's bizarre when we don't know these things. Back then, that was not the case. Here's a novel, here's a play. Start reading, start enjoying, or don't. Cervantes and Shakespeare were hugely popular in their own time, and yet people weren't running around writing their memoirs of having met them. But in spite of that fog of mystery... We do know some things about Cervantes. His life is much better known than Shakespeare's, and it's pretty incredible. He was born in 1547 in Alcalá de Henares, Henares being a river northeast of Madrid. For context, Shakespeare was born 17 years later in 1564 in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is northwest of London. Unlike Shakespeare, the upstart crow, Cervantes was born into a distinguished family with a name that stretched back generations. We might see in that something useful. Cervantes, in the Quixote especially, the whole driving force behind Don Quixote, in fact, was that there were these books out there telling of chivalric adventures, romances, works of chivalry, and Cervantes clearly thought that they were kind of ridiculous. We see this with novels in English as well. It's kind of like our day when people scoff at video games. It's what people do today, right? They scoff at action movies or romantic comedies, and they say, man, people spend so much time with these. They think the world is a fairy tale, and they are the heroes and heroines inside it. Or we look at reality TV and say, oh, what has become of us? Everyone thinks life is like an island and we're voting people off or people think their lives should be as it is on The Bachelor or that their roommate situation is like Big Brother and that there's a camera on everyone all the time and life isn't really like that. I read an article the other day that blamed HGTV for creating a housing crisis as young people see the homes on there and then find the actual houses available to be not as good. It's a real letdown. The houses people see on TV are beautiful and new and sleek, and the ones that people can actually afford are crummy. They have flaws. They're old. They're dark. That's how people can live, but they expect to live in the HGTV world. So 
Cervantes was like this too. He sees the books where everyone is a swashbuckling hero, and he looks around and says, these books are being read by people who have nothing heroic about them in their lives. It's not just that they're not heroic, it's that their lives are not expected to be heroic. They're peasants, fishmongers, and farmhands. And he looks back at his own lineage and sees actual knights there, real people who really did this stuff. The pretend version is suddenly exposed, and books are what's bringing people to that point. So, he writes a book to expose the comedy of it. And it's written in a dry style, but it's very clearly full of buffoonery. It says straight out, this is a man who read too many of these books and it warped his judgment. And we see that as Don Quixote sets out on his adventures, here he is. Here's a passage of Don Quixote after his judgment has been warped by all by reading all these romances. Quote, In short, his wits being quite gone, he hit upon the strangest notion that ever madmen in this world hit upon, and that was that he fancied it was right and requisite as well for the support of his own honor as for the service of his country, that he should make a knight-errant of himself, roaming the world over in full armor and on horseback in search of adventures, and putting in practice himself all that he had read of as being the usual practices of knights-errant, righting every kind of wrong and exposing himself to peril and danger, from which, in the issue, he was to reap eternal renown and fame." The first thing he did was to clean up some armor that had belonged to his great-grandfather and had been for ages lying forgotten in a corner, eaten with rust and covered with mildew. He scoured and polished it as best he could, but he perceived one great defect in it, that the face of the helmet was open. This deficiency, however, his ingenuity supplied, for he contrived a kind of half-helmet of pasteboard, which fitted onto the rest, looked like a whole one. It is true that in order to see if it was strong and fit to stand a cut, he drew his sword and gave it a couple of slashes, the first of which undid in an instant what had taken him a week to do. The ease with which he had knocked it to pieces disconcerted him somewhat, and to guard against that danger he set to work again, fixing bars of iron on the inside until he was satisfied with its strength, and then not caring to try any more experiments with it, he passed it and adopted it as a helmet of the most perfect construction. End quote. Don Quixote does something similar with his hack or his horse. He's deluded. The signal here that this is kind of a joke is the phrase, he gave it a couple of slashes, the first of which undid in an instant what had taken him a week to do. That kind of gives the game away, doesn't it? This is slapstick a goofball, a figure of fun. But it's also, it's kind of pathetic. His delusion and his sincerity may earn our sympathy. We know people who work hard at something only to see it fall to pieces. They tell themselves it's better than it is. It's funny, but it's also sad. It's so human. Maybe my English teacher trying to instruct those little kids with the markers on the floor. It was a little bit like that. Okay, Cervantes. We're going to get to... What's interesting about Cervantes, though, from the portrayal I've given you so far, you might think he was bookish looking back at, at the past, at the days of yore, when heroes were truly heroes. He actually was a hero in his own life. We're going to get there in a moment. Cervantes, as a child... Remember, we don't know a whole lot about his childhood. He tells us he remembers watching plays. His town was a university town and had a publishing house in it, a press. Seems to have been a good place to read and learn and experience the arts. He himself wrote plays when he grew older. That was his first foray into writing. I guess there was some poetry too. A lot of, there are very few, few, couple of references to his attending universities in different places, but those have been disputed. They tended to to come long after Cervantes had died and had become famous. He himself doesn't mention attending university. He seems to have drawn more upon his life experience than anything he might have learned at a school of higher education. We do know that he left Spain 
for about 12 years. He first worked for a man of the church who was working for the Pope. The man he worked for went on to become a cardinal. I should mention that although Cervantes came from a distinguished lineage, his family was not wealthy. His father was a barber surgeon specializing in bloodletting and the setting of bones. His grandfather had been a lawyer. The church slash diplomacy job with the cardinal, or the soon-to-be cardinal, took him to Italy, and it would have led Cervantes into bigger things. But after two years, he had had enough. He resigned and signed up as a soldier, which took him on board a ship that was sailing out of Messina on a campaign against the Turkish fleet. He was below deck and ill when the Turkish fleet was sighted. He insisted on resuming his post and joining in with the battle. His comrades pleaded with him to go back below deck because he was ill. He announced to his comrades that his health didn't matter. He was willing to die for his king and his god. And he took three gunshot wounds in the ensuing battle, two in the breast and one in the hand. He spent seven months in the hospital, and when he was finally discharged, his left hand was permanently damaged as it would be for the rest of his life. He couldn't use his left hand at all, but that didn't stop him from continuing his adventures. He headed back into the thick of it, joining a new regiment, probably with his brother, Rodrigo, and this time distinguishing himself during the capture of several Turkish Turkish ships. He did well enough to be recommended for a promotion, but this kind of backfired, the recommendation did, because when his ship was returning to Spain, it was captured by Barbary pirates. And the pirates found on Cervantes the letters that were recommending him for promotion. And the pirates realized who he was. They thought he was a valuable person, so they held him for ransom in Algiers. This was a true adventure. Now two things were happening simultaneously. At home, His parents and sisters desperately tried to raise enough money to pay the ransom. They sent the money to Algiers, but by now, his captor was convinced that he held someone of some importance, and he refused the ransom as not being enough. However, it was viewed as being enough by the man who held Rodrigo, Miguel's brother, and so Rodrigo was set free, and he met with Miguel before he left, and he promised that he would go raise some ships and return to free all the Spanish prisoners. Meanwhile, Miguel talked some of his fellow prisoners into trying to escape. Their first attempt, in their first attempt, they set out on foot to try to make it to a Spanish outpost. But after a day of walking, their local guide through the terrain abandoned them, and they were forced to return. Miguel then hatched a scheme to build a secret hideaway in a garden, which a Spanish gardener helped him do, and he brought his fellow prisoners there one by one, hiding some of them for months, feeding them with the help of a local man called El Dorador. The garden was on the coast, and one night, Rodrigo showed up with his ship. He had returned, ready to help them all escape, but just as they left the secret hideaway, just minutes away from freedom, they were apprehended. El Dorador had betrayed them all and had told the authorities of the scheme. Cervantes grandly offered to take the blame for everything. He was going to say, this was all my idea, me and only me. Only I should be punished. And When they were brought before their tribunal with torture and impalement being threatened, he declared that the scheme was his alone and he alone should be punished. The gardener was hanged. But Cervantes was saved. The idea was apparently that a man of such ingenuity and resourcefulness should not be killed, although they kept a careful eye on him. He was placed in irons. Nevertheless, he continued to try to escape. He sent a messenger out to get help from a nearby Spanish governor, but the messenger was caught. The letter on him was found, and the messenger was impaled for his participation in the scheme, while Cervantes was sentenced to 2,000 blows from a stick which probably would have killed him, but apparently someone intervened to prevent it. 
Cervantes didn't stop there. He had become the leader of the prison colony, the most resourceful prisoner, the most daring, the most committed to the idea of escape. For the next two years, he plotted another escape attempt. He finally managed to arrange for an armed vessel to come and pick up him and uh, 60 of his fellow prisoners, but they were betrayed yet again, and the plot failed. This time, the betrayal came from a man named Dr. Juan Blanco de Paz. Remember that name. Cervantes had the chance to escape on his own, and a lot of his fellow prisoners hoped that he would, as well as the people who were involved with the plot who also hoped this, because they worried that Cervantes would be tortured and give up the details, which would be bad for them. Cervantes declared that he wouldn't leave the others behind and that no amount of torture would induce him to blame anyone other than himself, and he went and turned himself in. He was placed in a torture device, but he wouldn't give up any information, and he was sent back to prison, where he was once again held in irons. His family, meanwhile, impoverished as they were, had raised some more ransom money. After some close calls and dangerous negotiations, the money was finally accepted, and Cervantes was free five years after his capture. He was headed back to Spain at last. But he heard that Dr. Juan Blanco de Paz, his betrayer, was now working for the Spanish Inquisition and had prepared a document full of lies about Cervantes. Cervantes responded in advance by gathering statements from his fellow prisoners, 11 of them attesting to his character and conduct throughout his imprisonment. That saved him from the Inquisition, but he was broke with little choice but to rejoin his old regiment, which was which was now marching for Portugal. He may have had an affair with a noble lady in Portugal. He had a daughter with her. The evidence is mixed. We do know that he had a daughter. We know that his prospects in the military were not great at this time. His hand didn't work, his left hand. He was getting close to 40, and his old mentors and supporters were gone. He left the army and started writing. This was how he would earn his living, he thought. He got married to a family friend, which may have brought him some more money, and although his first works didn't do so well, as he turned to the stage, he had 20 or 30 plays produced. Let's just say that as a playwright, Cervantes was no Shakespeare. He summarized his output as a playwright and the merits of his plays by saying, Nobody threw cucumbers at the actors, and the hissing and booing was not so loud that the play couldn't go on. A couple of the plays have survived, and I don't think any critics really disagree that they're nowhere near the quality of work that Cervantes would later exhibit as a novelist. Another way of measuring his success as a playwright is to say that he produced 20 or 30 plays and yet was broke after three years. He worked as a civil servant after that. He did that for decades. Once he was in charge of helping to provision the Spanish Armada, which was of course, famously doomed. Another point, he got a job collecting taxes for the king, which sent him around the countryside. It may have been where he got the idea for Don Quixote or where he found the people that he would put in that novel as he encountered the good people of Spain who were busy reading their works of romance and adventure. And it may also have been where he got the idea to try his hand at writing such a book on the hopes of finally making some money. His plans, at any rate were interrupted when he gave the money he had collected for the taxes to a merchant who was supposed to take it to the treasury. But the merchant ran off with the money. While Cervantes was blamed for not having it, and he was put in jail until he could make some arrangements to come up with some funds that would get him out. He seems to have started writing his masterpiece, Don Quixote, while in prison. It was not long after he got out that it was published, and it was a success almost immediately, with editions and pirated editions and translations all coming out in the next few years. He was close to 60 when he finally found this success. Cervantes seems to have had a relationship with Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, much like the ambivalent relationship that Arthur Conan Doyle had had with, or had, would eventually have, with Sherlock Holmes. He returned to the characters, and he wrote a part two, but he was kind of haphazard about it, and in the meantime, he seems to have been more focused on writing a great drama for the stage 
Cervantes was. That seems to have been his goal, his his artistic goal. He died on the same day as Shakespeare, probably of dropsy, although it was not the same day. They didn't actually die at the same instant. It's the same day, but Spain switched its calendar earlier than England did. So although both authors are given a death date of April 23rd, it was actually 11 days apart. Not that that really matters one way or the other. I do find it fascinating that these two lived at the same time, and maybe we can say that their deaths came early in a sense. Many people say that Shakespeare was a product of the Elizabethan world, and he excelled at drama because that was what was called for at the time. That's what could give you success at the time. Novels didn't really get rolling in English for another century or so, but Shakespeare had access to Don Quixote, there's a disputed tradition that he might have co-written a play based on an episode in the Quixote, which we don't have time for that story today. In any case, we know that Shakespeare could have read Don Quixote. It was published in English during his lifetime and was popular, and one can imagine that he'd read it or knew of it, and maybe when he went into his final retreat, the stage no longer necessary or desirable for him, maybe had he lived longer, Maybe he'd have tried his hand at such a novel. Maybe Cervantes would have become the Aeschylus of Spain, as he apparently hoped, if he had had a few more years. Maybe he died too young as well. One thing we know about Cervantes is death. He seems to have faced it with energy and good humor. His life is inspiring in that way. It's full of poverty, full of pain, full of failures, but also full of of gusto. And there's a lesson in that. If you don't let life defeat you, great things are possible. You might change the world forever. Let's take another break and come back with a taste of Don Quixote, the book that changed the world, with a close look at perhaps its most famous passage. Sometime we'll do an episode just on this book. Consider this an appetizer, a brief introduction. I'm going to read from chapter 8, also known as the windmill chapter, probably the most famous passage, although some others are close, and you could argue that the first few chapters are the most important, as the author addresses the reader and describes his project. And many people say that the second book is where Don Quixote truly turns from an exciting parody into a literary masterpiece. But let's stick to this one for now, chapter 8. If you know anything at all about Don Quixote, you probably know about this chapter. And you probably know this. He was a knight who was deluded. He tilted at windmills, as we say in English now. Tilted meaning uh, attacked with his lance. What really happened was that the knight... The would-be knight read so many works of chivalry, so many adventure stories, that he came to believe that he should have such an adventure, and then he set about making that happen. First, he creates all his stuff, all the stuff he needs to be a knight, which is comical. I read from that earlier when I described his efforts to make a helmet. He turns his nag of a horse into a great steed, and any woman he encounters is potentially a great lady in distress, and so on. And if you know anything else about Don Quixote, you know that he dragoons a neighbor into helping him, Sancho Panza, one of the, the great sidekicks in literature. Sancho Panza is the sidekick who sees things more clearly, but who goes along with the deluded knight as his less deluded but willing to play along squire. The early chapter that I'm about to read has all three of these things. You probably know the hero, the sidekick, and the windmills, which is kind of breathtaking to see, like the Passage of the Footsteps on the Sand in Robinson Crusoe. It's such a legendary passage. It's exciting to actually read the words that put it all in motion. And this chapter also sets out some of the book's great themes. Except I don't always like that word, themes. It sounds like homework. The concerns of the book, the project, what's good about it, why we should care. So let's go ahead and hear this excerpt from the chapter, and then I'll talk about what I think it represents. 
Chapter 8 of the good fortune which the valiant Don Quixote had in the terrible and undreamt-of adventure of the windmills with other occurrences worthy to be fitly recorded. At this point, they came in sight of 30 or 40 windmills that are there on the plain, and as soon as Don Quixote saw them, he said to his squire, Fortune is arranging matters for us better than we could have shaped our desires ourselves. For look there, friend Sancho Panza, where thirty or more monstrous giants present themselves, all of whom I mean to engage in battle and slay, and with whose spoils we shall begin to make our fortunes, for this is righteous warfare, and it is God's good service to sweep so evil a breed from off the face of the earth. What giants? said Sancho Panza. Those thou seest there, answered his master, with the long arms, and some have them nearly two leagues long. Look, your worship, said Sancho, what we see there are not giants, but windmills, and what seem to be their arms are the sails that turned by the wind that make the millstone go. It is easy to see, replied Don Quixote, that thou art not used to this business of adventures. Those are giants, and if thou art afraid, away with thee out of this and betake thyself to prayer, while I engage them in fierce and unequal combat. So saying, he gave the spur to his steed, heedless of the cries his squire Sancho sent after him, warning him that most certainly they were windmills and not giants he was going to attack. He, however, was so positive they were giants that he neither heard the cries of Sancho nor perceived, near as he was, what they were, but made at them, shouting, Fly not, cowards and vile beings, for a single night attacks you. A slight breeze at this moment sprang up, and the great sails began to move, seeing which Don Quixote exclaimed, Though ye flourish more arms than the giant Briarius, ye have to reckon with me. So saying, and commending himself with all his heart to his lady Dulcinea, imploring her to support him in such a peril, with lance in rest and covered by his buckler, he charged at his steed's fullest gallop and fell upon the first mill that stood in front of him. But as he drove his lance point into the sail, the wind whirled it round with such force that it shivered the lance to pieces, sweeping with it horse and rider, who went rolling over on the plain in a sorry condition. Sancho hastened to his assistance as fast as his ass could go, and when he came up, found him unable to move. With such a shock had the steed fallen with him. "'God bless me,' said Sancho. "'Did I not tell your worship to mind what you were about, for they were only windmills, and no one could have made any mistake about it but one who had something of the same kind in his head?' "'Hush, friend Sancho.' replied Don Quixote, the fortunes of war more than any other are liable to frequent fluctuations. And moreover, I think, and it is the truth, that that same sage Friston who carried off my study and books has turned these giants into mills in order to rob me of the glory of vanquishing them. Such is the enmity he bears me. But in the end, his wicked arts will avail but little against my good sword." God order it as he may, said Sancho Panza, and helping him to rise, got him up again on his steed, whose shoulder was half out. And then, discussing the late adventure, they followed the road to Puerto Lapiche, for there, said Don Quixote, they could not fail to find adventures in abundance and variety, as it was a great thoroughfare. For all that, he was much grieved at the loss of his lance. And saying so to his squire, he added, I remember having read how a Spanish knight... Diego Perez de Vargas, by name, having broken his sword in battle, tore from an oak a ponderous bough or branch, and with it did such things that day, and pounded so many moors that he got the surname of Machuca, and he and his descendants from that day forth were called Vargas y Machuca. I mention this because from the first oak I see, I mean to rend such another branch, large and stout like that, with which I am determined and resolved to do such deeds that thou mayest deem thyself very fortunate in being found worthy to come and see them, and be an eyewitness of things that will with difficulty be believed. Be that as God will, said Sancho. I believe it all as your worship says it, but straighten yourself a little, for you seem all on one side. Maybe from the shaking of the fall. 
That is the truth, said Don Quixote, and if I make no complaint of the pain, it is because knights errant are not permitted to complain of any wound, even though their bowels be coming out through it. If so, said Sancho, I have nothing to say, but God knows I would rather your worship complained when anything ailed you. For my part, I confess I must complain however small the ache may be, unless this rule about not complaining extends to the squires of knights errant also. Don Quixote could not help laughing at his squire's simplicity, and he assured him he might complain whenever and however he chose, just as he liked, for, so far, he had never read of anything to the contrary in the order of knighthood. Sancho bade him remember it was dinner-time, to which his master answered that he wanted nothing himself just then, but that he might eat when he had a mind. With this permission, Sancho settled himself as comfortably as he could on his beast, and taking out of the alforjas which he had stowed away in them, he jogged along behind his master, munching deliberately, and from time to time taking a pull at the bota with a relish that the thirstiest tapster in Malaga might have envied. And while he went on in this way, gulping down draft after draft, he never gave a thought to any of the promises his master had made him, nor did he rate it as hardship, but rather as recreation, going in quest of adventures, however dangerous they might be. Finally they passed the night among some trees, from one of which Don Quixote plucked a dry branch to serve him after a fashion as a lance, and fixed it on the head he had removed from the broken one. All that night Don Quixote lay awake thinking of his lady Dulcinea, in order to conform to what he had read in his books, how many a night in the forests and deserts knights used to lie sleepless, supported by the memory of their mistresses. Not so did Sancho Panza spend it, for having a stomach full of something stronger than chicory water, he made but one sleep of it, and if his master had not called him, neither the rays of the sun beating on his face nor all the cheery notes of the birds welcoming the, the approach of day would have had power to waken him. On getting up, he tried the bota and found it somewhat less full than the night before, which grieved his heart, because they did not seem to be on the way to remedy the deficiency readily. Don Quixote did not care to break his fast, for, as has been already said, he confined himself to savory recollections for nourishment. They returned to the road they had set out with, leading to Puerto Lepiche, and at three in the afternoon they came in sight of it. Here, brother Sancho Panza, said Don Quixote when he saw it, we may plunge our hands up to the elbows in what they call adventures. But observe, even shouldst thou see me in the greatest danger in the world, thou must not put a hand to thy sword in my defense, unless indeed thou perceivest that those who assail me are rabble or base folk." for in that case thou mayest very properly aid me. But if they be knights, it is on no account permitted or allowed thee by the laws of knighthood to help me until thou hast been dubbed a knight. Most certainly, senor, replied Sancho, your worship shall be fully obeyed in this matter, all the more as of myself I am peaceful, and no friend to mixing in strife and quarrels. It is true that as regards the defense of my own person, I shall not give much heed to those laws, for laws human and divine allow each one to defend himself against any assailant whatever. That I grant, said Don Quixote, but in this matter of aiding me against knights, thou must put a restraint upon thy natural impetuosity. I will do so, I promise you, answered Sancho, and will keep this precept as carefully as Sunday. While they were thus talking, there appeared on the road two friars of the order of St. Benedict, mounted on two dromedaries for not less tall were the two mules they rode on. They wore traveling spectacles and carried sunshades, and behind them came a coach attended by four or five persons on horseback and two muleteers on foot. In the coach there was, as afterwards appeared, a Biscay lady on her way to Seville, where her husband was about to take passage for the Indies with an appointment of high honor. The friars, though going the same road, were not in her company, but the moment Don Quixote perceived them, he said to his squire, Either I am mistaken, or this is going to be the most famous adventure that has ever been seen. For those black bodies we see there must be, and doubtless are, magicians, who are carrying off some stolen princess in that coach, and with all my might I must undo this wrong. This will be worse than the windmills, 
said Sancho. Look, senor, those are friars of St. Benedict, and the coach plainly belongs to some travelers. I tell you to mind well what you are about, and don't let the devil mislead you. I have told thee already, Sancho, replied Don Quixote, that on the subject of adventures thou knowest little. What I say is the truth, as thou shalt see presently. So saying, he advanced and posted himself in the middle of the road, along which the friars were coming, and as soon as he thought they had come near enough to hear what he said, he cried aloud, Devilish and unnatural beings, release instantly the high-born princesses whom you are carrying off by force in this coach, else prepare to meet a speedy death as the just punishment of your evil deeds. I'll let you turn to the work itself. To hear about the rest, to hear the rest of chapter eight, which tells the story of Don Quixote's fight with the friars and how Sancho Panza plays this and what adventures befall our heroes after that. Let's just admire for a moment what we've gotten in this handful of pages. We see what the chivalry romances have done to Don Quixote. He's besotted with literature, with stories of bravery, and his desire to be part of the story has overwhelmed him. Cervantes doesn't want to be part of this world of writing a story and making people excited. Or maybe I should say he wants to do that, but with a wink. We know this isn't real, don't we, dear reader? That's Cervantes' voice. You're reading about this? This man that I'm inventing, you're not going to be that person. And people who forget that distinction between fiction and reality are forgetting what fiction is and what it does. So it's a comment on chivalry and on fiction and Cervantes is there to be a knowing guide to both. But there's more. There's a reason why this is a masterpiece. If it was merely a takedown of adventure stories, the end of a genre, we wouldn't view it as a masterpiece. We don't care so much about the stories before Don Quixote anymore. We only care about them to the extent that they gave rise to this. There's something... Why is that? Well, there's something very deeply human about the desire to be something we're not. There's a reason why we've turned to epic tales of heroes, to campfire stories as old as the hills, to legends and myths. There's something deeply human about wanting to be adventurous and wanting to live a grand life and wanting to live up to our ideals about who we are and who we should be. Don Quixote isn't just staggering through life thinking he's seeing giants, he's on a quest to do the right thing, to be a worthy person, to not just fritter away his days, to help in some meaningful way. There's something deeply human in thinking that this is necessary. But there's also something deeply human in thinking that it's possible. Do our actions matter? Are we really making a difference to anyone at all, ever, is there anything grand about a human being, an individual human being, when we'll all be dead in a hundred years and mostly forgotten a hundred years after that? Isn't it deluded to imagine that we are not just insignificant ants, but that we have meaning and purpose, that we can be noble, and that our noblest acts truly matter? Those are tough questions, and we all kind of face them. We're Don Quixote in that respect. We do believe we matter. We do try as hard as we can to be good and to do good. But we're also Sancho Panza. If we see through the delusion, if we realize that windmills are just windmills and life is essentially meaningless unless we talk ourselves into it having some meaning, aren't we basically Sancho? And what do we do? We can say that this book is about friendship and loyalty. What if your friend falls under this spell? Do you join? Do you tolerate? Do you help? Do you refuse to help? But we can go bigger than that too, or deeper, and say, what if we ourselves see the truth of reality? And the truth is that we don't matter. We are all Don Quixotes fighting pointless battles, telling ourselves that our opponents are powerful and our exploits have value. But do they? When you read Don Quixote, and yes, the official policy of the History of Literature podcast is that you should read it if you want to. No book is required. You're free to do what you want. But let's say when you read Don Quixote, 
think about that question. Am I, in my life, truly fighting giants, or am I tilting at windmills? That's the Don Quixote question. But no matter what the answer is, what is the alternative? That's the Sancho Panza question. It's the kind of question that a genius presents and that we humble readers spend centuries struggling to answer. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Miguel de Cervantes and our emailers and our Patreons. I'm thankful to you as well for joining me, dear listeners. I hope you're doing well, staying safe and healthy, and looking forward to your own next adventure, whether that's on a plane with windmills ahead of you and your pasteboard visor in place, riding a lowly hack, or on a battlefield peopled with giants and your gorgeous helmet in place a trusty squire at your side and a majestic steed carrying you forth. I'll be here either way, reading books in my crumpled little way and smiling at your adventures. Whether you've found giants to battle or are out there swinging your sword and at windmills, doesn't matter to me. I'm on your side, no matter what. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.